Jewish Audio on Kaban.org. Rabbi Krinsky, Rabbi Shemtov, Rabbi Kotlowski, Rabbi Sudak, Rabbi Lou, all the shluchim from Britain, all the shluchim from everywhere, distinguished guest friends. I can sum up my reaction to this evening in one word. Wow! In two words, double wow. If I hadn't seen it, I wouldn't have believed it. I know Rabbi Kotlowski told me he was inviting a few friends. But I have to tell you, me care of life, from the depths of my heart, I've received many honors, but none as moving and as humbling as this. Because you, the Shluchim, are among the most important people in the Jewish world today. You are bringing the Shekhinah to places where perhaps it was never seen before. You are bringing the Shekhinah into lives that never knew it before. And you are transforming the Jewish world. And why are you doing so? Because directly or indirectly you have been touched as I was touched by one of the greatest Jewish leaders, not just of our time, but of all time. Throughout Jewish history there were great leaders, but I know of no precedent for one who transformed visibly and substantively every single Jewish community in the world. <laughs> including many parts of the world that never had a Jewish community before. And let me tell you a little story that sums it up. It happened 41 years ago, Elaine and I were on our honeymoon. We decided to go to the Swiss Alps. I had never been to mountains before. We went. We arrived. It was brilliant sunshine. The view was magnificent. The next morning, I opened the window and said, Who moved the mountains? They're gone. Then I looked again, and I saw that they were covered in very low cloud. What to do? We'd come all this way to climb a mountain, and we couldn't go back without climbing a mountain. But we couldn't see more than two or three feet in any direction. We didn't know where we were going. We didn't know how where we got, wherever we got, we'd get back. So I said to Elaine, it is very simple. We will sing Chabad Nigunin. She said, why are we singing Chabad Nigunim? I said, very simple, because if a Jew is lost anywhere in the world, Chabad will find them. And all of this because of the Rebbe Zuchusa Yagen Aleinu. So it was and so it is. You have been touched by greatness 
and every one of you has become great. And therefore I say to all the Shluchim and to all those wonderful people who support the work of the Shluchim and make it possible. May God bless all you do. Amen. Friends, Rabbi Kudlowski asked me to tell you a little story, a personal one, of how the Rebbe changed my life. And I've agreed, not because I think my story is special, it isn't. But it is by telling such stories that we remind ourselves of what Chabad is about and what makes it special. It is a story in three acts. The first took place in Tovshin Chavches in 1968, Tovshin Chav, Zion, Tovshin Chavches, when I was a second year student, a sophomore at university. I'd already encountered Chabad because Rabbi Shmuel Lu and Rabbi Feibish Vogel visited Cambridge. They were among the very first to go out to university campuses, and I was among the very first beneficiaries. Then came that summer, 68, and I came to America to meet great rabbis of the day, and every one of them, every single rabbi I met in America said, you must see the rabbi, you must see the rabbi. So I went to Eastern Parkway, 770, I came in, I said to the first chazid I met, I'd like to speak to the rabbi, please. He fell about laughing. He said, do you know how many thousands of people are waiting to see the Rebbe? Forget it. I said, well, I'll be traveling around America. Here's the phone number of my aunt in Los Angeles. If it's possible, phone me. Weeks later, I was in Los Angeles. Came Motzei Shabbat. The phone went. It was Chabad. The Rebbe will see you on Thursday. Now, I had no money in those days. And all I had was a Greyhound bus ticket. Have you ever ridden from Los Angeles to New York on a Greyhound bus? 72 hours nonstop, I sat on this bus. I came to 770, and eventually the moment came when I was ushered into the rabbi's study. I asked him all my intellectual, philosophical questions. He gave me intellectual, philosophical answers. And then he did what no one else had done. He did a role reversal. He started asking me questions. How many Jewish students in Cambridge? How many get involved in Jewish life? What are you doing to bring other people in? Now, I hadn't come to become a Shalia. I come to ask a few simple questions. And all of a sudden, he was challenging me. So I did the English thing. You know, the English can construct sentences like nobody else, you know? Uh, they can construct more complex excuses for doing nothing than anyone else on earth. So, I started a sentence in the situation in which I find myself. And the Rebbe did something which I think was quite unusual for him. He actually stopped me in mid-sentence. He says, nobody finds themselves in a situation. You put yourself in a situation. And if you put yourself in that situation, you can put yourself in another situation. That moment changed my life. Here I was. 
here I was, a nobody from nowhere, and here was one of the greatest leaders in the Jewish world challenging me not to accept the situation, but to change it. And then, that was when I realized what I've said many times since, that the world was wrong. When they thought the most important fact about the Rebbe was here was a man with thousands of followers. They missed the most important fact that a good leader creates followers, but a great leader creates leaders. That's what the Rebbe did for me. And for thousands of others. Friends, that particular episode had an unusual ending. I was due to leave the States, go back to England on my charter flight on a Sunday at the end of August, beginning of September, I can't remember exactly when. So the day before on Shabbos, there was a big fugbrang, and the Hasidim told me, you're going back to England, take a bottle of vodka, go up to the rabbi in Anigan during the uh, fugbrangen, and he'll zog and he'll take it with you, and that'll be the rabbi's vodka. So in the middle of the Febrang and thousands of people there, I went up to the rabbi and gave him to say Alachayim. And he looked at me with surprise. He said, you're going? I said, yes. He said, why? I said, I have to get back to Cambridge. The term is beginning. He turned to me and he said, but the Cambridge term does not begin until October. I never knew then, I still don't know today how he knew it, but he was right. He said to me, I think you should stay for Rosh Hashanah. So he said, I went back. Everyone around me wanted to know, what did the rabbi say to you? What did the rabbi say? So I told them what the rabbi said. I didn't know. If the rabbi says stay, it's a polite thing. You say, thank you very much. I didn't realize if the rabbi said stay, you stay. So I stayed, as a result of which I heard the rabbi on Rosh Hashanah blow shofar. Quite the most remarkable experience I ever had, the purity of those notes, the sight of all the Hasidim hanging from every surface, trying to catch sight of the rabbi blowing shofar. And I heard a sound in which heaven and earth touched and the echoes of that chauffeur have stayed with me ever since. That was the challenge he threw down, a challenge to lead. That didn't immediately change my life. I went back to university, although I still felt the power of the Rebbe's challenge. So in 1969, after getting my degree, I went to study in Kfar Chabad, where I learned with Rav Gafni, and it was a wonderful experience. In 1970, I came back, got married, starting teaching philosophy, writing a doctorate, but I still felt I hadn't done enough to meet the rabbi's challenge. So I studied for smicha. I qualified as a rabbi, and I thought, that's it. I've grown a little as a Jew, and now I'm ready to get back with the rest of my life. That was when I made the second great mistake. I went back to see the rabbi again. <laughs> January 1978, my friends in Lubavitch told me exactly what to do. You put your question in writing, you give the rubber options, one, two, three, and the rubber will tell you either one or two or three. 
So I set out my options. I said to the rabbi, I have a career in front of me. I have three choices. Number one, maybe I would like to be an academic. Halavai, one day I would be a professor. Or maybe a fellow of my college in Cambridge. Or number two, I went to university initially to study economics. I'd like to be an economist. Or number three, I'd like to be a barrister, an advocate. I was a member of the one of the inns of court, the inner temple, where you studied to be a lawyer. I went into the Yechidis not knowing what the Rebbe would answer. Would it be one? Would it be two? Would it be three? The Rebbe looked at me and he went through the list. Not one, not two, not three. I thought, hang on, this is against the rules. <laughs> the Rebbe did not give me time to reply. He told me Anglo jury was short of rabbis. And therefore, he said to me, you must train rabbis. He specified Jews College, which is where rabbis were trained in Britain. And then he said, you yourself must become a congregational rabbi so that your students will come and they will hear you give, I still remember the way you pronounce the word, sermons. They will hear you give sermons and they will know. And so you train rabbis, you become a rabbi. Well, uh, I was a little for Blanchet, uh, a word I've introduced into the English language, courtesy of the BBC. But if the Rebbe says do it, I did it. I gave up my three ambitions. I trained rabbis. I taught at Jews College. Eventually I became head of Jews College and I became a congregational rabbi. In Green and Marble Arch. You know, a funny thing happened. Having given up all my three ambitions, having decided to walk in the completely opposite direction, a funny thing happened. I did become a fellow of my college in Cambridge. I did become a professor. In fact, this year I have three professorships, one in Oxford University, two in London University. I did. <laughs> deliver Britain's top two economics lectures, the Mays Lecture and the Hayek Lecture, and in a temple made me an honorary barrister and invited me to give a law lecture in front of 600 barristers, the Lord Chancellor, the highest lawyer in Britain, and Princess Anne, who is the master. You know, you never lose anything <laughs> by putting Yiddishkeit first. And I learned something very deep. Sometimes the best way of achieving your ambitions is to stop pursuing them and let them pursue you. That was Act 2, Act 3, 1990. Anglo Jury was looking for a new chief rabbi. It was clear that I was going to be one of the candidates, but I wasn't sure that I was right for the job or the job was right for me, and so I sat down with my family, with Elaine, with our children, and they agreed to permit me to write to the rabbi and ask his advice. I set out that studying Lakanu Lakan, the pros and cons of the job, and the rabbi wrote a most extraordinary reply, a brilliant reply, without using a single word. You know that the rabbi, before he was rabbi, ran the Chabad publishing house Kahot, and as a result, he knew. I've written 24 books. I don't know about this thing yet. 
but he knew the typographical symbols that are used by proofreaders. So towards the end of the letter, I had, having set out the pros and cons, I wrote the sentence, if they offer me the job, should I accept? This was the Rebbe's reply. The typographical symbol for reverse word order. Instead of saying, should I, the answer is, I should. So, <laughs> 13 years to the day after I became a congregational rabbi, I became chief rabbi, and in that job I have tried to the best of my ability. If I succeeded, I don't know. But I tried to do what I know the rabbi would want, have wanted me to do, to build schools, to improve Anglo-Jewish education, to reach out, and to make not followers, but leaders. And I did one other thing, which was a little bit unusual, and I want to explain to you now why. I've never said this in public before. There was a point, and I was a little involved, the Hanhala in Lubavitch in London asked me just for, to get involved a little bit. There was a point in the 1970s and 80s when the Rebbe developed a very interesting campaign, the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach campaign, to reach out not just to Jews, but also to non-Jews. I realized that in my new position as chief rabbi, I could do just that. So I started broadcasting on the BBC, on radio, on television, writing for the national press. I wrote books read by non-Jews as well as Jews. And the effect was absolutely extraordinary. The more I spoke, the more they wanted to hear, which certainly proves they weren't Jewish. <laughs> the more I wrote, the more they wanted to read. And you know what that experience told me? Not only the wisdom, the vast foresight of the Rebbe in understanding that the world was ready to hear a Jewish message, but it taught me something else as well. And I want you never to forget these words. Non-Jews respect Jews who respect Judaism. And non-Jews are embarrassed by Jews who are embarrassed by Judaism. The Rebbe taught us how to fulfill Vera'u kol ameha'aretz kishem Hashem nikra alecha Let all the world see we are never ashamed to stand tall as Jews. So at the three critical turning points in my life, the Rebbe was my satellite navigation system showing me where to go and how. And though I didn't always understand why at the time, in retrospect I see how extraordinary his advice was and how wise. Most people look at others and see what they see. Great people look at others and see what they are. The greatest of the great, and the Rebbe was greatest of the great, see others and see what they could become. And that was his greatness. <clears throat> and you are testimony to the fact, every one of you, that not only did the Rebbe transform lives, he transformed people into people who themselves transformed lives. And that, through you, is how he changed the world. Through you, he him. And through all the other special people who support you and make your work possible. And now, friends, 
we must continue to transform the world. And how do we do it? We do it precisely in the words that are taken from Ayom Yom that are the theme of this year's conference. Ashliach is the Ein Zach midem We know from Rabbi Yosef Engel, from the Rabbi himself, that there are various madregas in being a shliach. But the highest madrega is, as it says in Hayom Yom, in Alts Makusha, join in every single thing that we do. I hope you're doing that now, guys. Because if not, I have not been doing my job. Friends, if we live and breathe the Rebbe Shlichus, then he lives on in us. And the question is, what is that Shlichus here and now? There are so many things we could say about the challenges of the months ahead. I want to say just three things. Number one, think about this. The Rebbe, like every Rebbe, said it is goal to be Mekara Vagula, to bring Mashiach. But the Rebbe was different from other Rebbeim because the Rebbe did so with particular urgency. And although he never specified why, I speculated on this. And I, I thought this, maybe I'm wrong, but I think not. Because he was the first Rebbe to become Rebbe after the Holocaust. And how can you redeem a world that had witnessed Hitler? And the Rebbe did something absolutely extraordinary. He said to himself, if the Nazis search out every Jew in hate, we will search out every Jew in love. the most radical response to the Holocaust ever conceived, and I don't know if we still, if the Jewish world still understands it. Today, in many parts of the world, anti-Semitism has returned. And Baruch Hashem, there are hundreds of organizations fighting it. But still, even now, no one is saying what the Rebbe said. Not explicitly, but implicitly in everything he did. If you want to fight Sinas Israel, then practice Avas Israel. <laughs> Friends, hands up all those who think there's too much Avas Israel in the world. So, friends, we still have work to do. We still have work to do. Anti-Semites, you know, are totally crazy. Anti-Semites believe that Jews control the banks, they believe Jews control the media, they believe that Jews control the world. Little do they know that we can't even control a shul board meeting. <laughs> and that is why, friends, if there's Sony Israel out there, we have to be Oave Yisrael. 
If the Rebbe were speaking to us today, he would say, Es davas Yisrael, Es davas Yisrael, Shlov davas Yisrael. And if you already love Jews, love them more. Point two. Point two, if you want to be Makar of Yidin, do it the way the Rebbe did. When he took a 20-year-old student from far away and turned him into a leader. Friends, I once heard a beautiful story from a shliach who had gone to a little town in Alaska. He asked the local town hall, are there any Jews there? They said to him, there are no Jews there. So he asked, in order not to go back, having not done anything, could he go and visit the local school and give a talk to children? And the mayor or the head of the school, I don't know, I can't remember the story, the Yishliach himself told me this story, said fine, and he went, and he went into a classroom in this little town in the middle of Alaska. And he said, children, have any of you ever met a Jew? And one little girl put up her hand and she said yes. And he said, Who? And she said, my mother. And he was thinking to himself, what do I say to this girl? She's the only Jewish child in the school. This is the only Jews in the entire city. I have to go and I, there's no way I can get them to leave and come to a place where they're either the Eden. What can I say to this girl now that will lead her to stay Jewish? And this is what he did. He asked her every Arab Shabbos to light Shabbos candles. And he said this to her. He said, I don't know if you know this, that Alaska is the most westerly place in the world where there are Jews. It is the last place in the world where Shabbos comes. And when every Jew lights Shabbos candles, they bring light and peace to the world. So every Shabbos, the whole world is waiting for your Shabbos candles. The last of all to be lit. Can you imagine what that did for that child? He could have said, what are you doing here in the middle of nowhere? No, no Jews. Instead, in the most beautiful way, he made her feel important. She had a task performed for the whole Jewish people, for the whole world. That is how you change lives. That is how the Rebbe changed lives. By showing people a greatness they did not know they had by showing people what they could become. So those are the first two ways. Love Jews and show them what to become. But the last point I think is very simple. Rosh Chodesh Kislev. Hanukkah is on the way. There's a famous Machlokis in Gemara Shabbos, the Chof Beis, on the following question, can you take a Hanukkah candle and use it to light another Hanukkah candle? Yes or no? And on this, there's a Mochlokis Ravu Shmuel. Rav says no, Shmuel says yes. Rav says no because ka machish mitzvah. You diminish the mitzvah. If I take a light to light another light, then I'm going to spill a little of the oil or the little, a little of the wax. And the result is that I will diminish the first light. And Shmuel doesn't worry about this. Now we know in general, 
And in Malchlog Kisrav and Shmuel, Halacha Kisrav, the law is always like Rav against Shmuel, with only three exceptions. And this is one of them. What is at stake? What were they arguing about? And why in this case is the law not like Rav, but like Shmuel? And the answer you will find in today's Jewish world. You will take two Yidin, two Jews, both religious, both from, both Elech, both Yerei both keeping all the mitzvahs, Kala Kechamura. But there's a big difference between them. One of them says, I have to look after my light. And if I get involved with Jews who are not from, or not religious, who are not committed, Kamachish mitzvah, my Yiddishkeit will be diminished. That is the view of Rav. And Rav was a spiritual giant. But Shmuel dared to say otherwise. He said, when I take my light to set another Jewish soul on fire, I don't have less light, I have more. Because while there was once one light, now there are two. And maybe from those two will come more. And on this, the halacha is like Shmuel. Friends, that is what it is to be a chassid. To paskin like Shmuel. To know that when we go out to Jews who are less committed than we are, our light is not diminished. The result is we create more light in the world. A chassid of the Rebbe knows, Aaron, no say is no sub. If you lift another Jew, you yourself are lifted. If you light with your candle and kindle the flame in the heart of another Jew, your light will not be diminished. You will be lifted, your light will be doubled. Friends, 42 years ago, one of the great Jewish leaders of all time took an unknown student from thousands of miles away and lit a light in his soul that has burned from that day to this. And he did it not just for him, but for ten thousands of thousands of others. And we are his shlichim. We will never manage to do it fully, but we will do our best to walk as he walked, eat as he ate, schluft as he schluft, which was pretty nearly never. And you know, you know what I know. And this, in the silence of our souls, we can hear what the rebel would be saying to us now. He would be saying, you think you've done enough. You must be as a light is on Hanukkah, Mosifah always doing more. Mayim B'Kodesh, Ve'en Maridin, in Kedushah, you always climb and there is always more of the mountain to climb. And he would be saying to us, number one, live, breathe, and sleep, Avas Yisrael. Number two, become leaders who turn other Jews into leaders. And number three, be madlik minel and air. Take your light and make light others. And together, let us light a flame in the hearts of other Jews. And together, let us light up the world. Amen.